Welcome back to another episode of the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw. Thank you for spending some of your day with us. And today I have a really interesting and unusual and special episode for you. And it all involves West Africa. So some people know that I have been getting into cooking West African food uh, in the last two or three years or so. It's an area that uh, I'm trying to get better at and I'm doing a lot of research and studying and cooking and talking to people who are good at it. And one of the prime movers in that is a woman named Zoya Janya. She was born in England and uh, of Ghanaian heritage. And she has this amazing book out called Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. And I bought the British version of it some years ago. And it just so happens that an American version is coming out right now. So her book is on the shelves right now. It's called Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. And one of the things that is fascinating about it is it shows how important seafood and fish are in that region's cuisine. So as you might guess, most of West Africa is on the water, is on the Atlantic Ocean. And so they make great use of all kinds of fish and seafood, both dried and smoked and fresh and all that kind of stuff. So I really wanted to do a deep dive into this with Zoe. And I got a chance to cut her on the Zoomed machine, you know. She was in England, and so the quality of this recording isn't as good as it could have been, but it was what we had, and it was great to be able to get her actually on the air because she's a very busy woman. So hope you enjoy the episode, and we'll take it away from here. Welcome to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. Zoe Ajanya, yes, uh, all the way from London. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how people do that. Um, yeah, you said it correctly, Zoe Adonia. And yes, hello, I'm very happy to be here. Oh, goodness me. <laughs> very busy, Zoe Adonia. <laughs> <laughs> my timer telling me I'm supposed to be on a podcast right now. There you go. Um, no, thank, thank you for having me. And yes, I am currently in London at the moment. I have heard uh, through the grapevine that you're sort of bi-coastal at this point, where you either have a place in New York City or you're just visiting there a lot or... Oh, no, I got my green card in May. Oh, I'll be damned. That's right. I forgot about that. Almost all American. Um, But I I still have my place in London. And, um, you know, it takes a minute to (laughs) pack up your life in another city and take it to the other. So I'm here doing a bit of that, but mostly I'm doing some supper clubs, actually. Oh, so you're doing supper clubs in the United Uh, States, too? or? uh, Yeah, sometimes. Obviously, you know, the restrictions of the last 18 months haven't been helpful for, um, you know, gatherings in people's homes. Um, But, yeah, when I get back to New York, which will be in October, I'll be doing a lot of different supper clubs and pop-ups. So that's the plan, yeah. So I want to tell the readers and the listeners out there first sort of why we're talking. So I... Uh, have always been interested in all the various forms of African food. And I use that term very loosely because Africa is like three times the size of the United States. Um, And uh, my first restaurant gig was at an Ethiopian place. And I've spent a fair bit of time in East Africa and South Africa. But I didn't really know a heck of a lot about West Africa. And so I kind of came to learning about West African food uh, through your colleague or our colleague, Pierre Tiam from Senegal. Okay. Yeah, Pierre. I love Pierre. Because I had heard, you know, basically that, okay, you know, if you talk to like really serious food people, 
you hear about Ethiopia, of course, you hear about North Africa, of course, and then you hear about Senegal as kind of like the eaters capitals of Africa. And then I'm like, well, you know, clearly there's more than that. And so I started to scrape around uh, the rest of West Africa and to look at the flavors and the foods. And also because there's a gigantic connection between West African food and United States food, especially in the South. Yeah. So I found, you know, a bunch of books about Ghana's cooking and my next door neighbor um, is married to a Ghanaian. So like after conversations and talking to a whole bunch of other things, I decided like, oh, I need to find a really good cookbook. And the best one that I found was written in the United Kingdom by you. Yay! <laughs> and, and as it happens, uh, it's funny because I'm like, I've been working with your book and I have several recipes uh, totally name checking you and linking to your book on my website. Um, because I've wow, been doing this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I'm trying to sell you some books here. And <laughs> have you or are you just about to release an American version of Zoe's Gone Kitchen? That's right. Yeah. I'm hugely flattered that you say all those things. It's wonderful. Um, and yes, the book came out originally in 2017 in the UK. It's on its third edition in the UK now. And there's going to be a new edition for the States coming out this fall, October 19th. Um, which I'm really, really excited about because, yeah, um, there's some people out there doing great work in the space of promoting West African food, and Pierre Cham is just one of them. Also, Eric Adjopong, I'm sure you will have heard of him mm-hmm. all over the TV in America, but I think it's still um, it's still a new idea, like specifically Ghanaian food, to imagining much of America. Um, and, you know, 12 years ago, I had this mission to bring as you say, African food in big air quotes because Africa is a continent, not a country. It has four countries. I know. Um, but I just I wanted to start the ball rolling on getting people's attention for West African flavors and ingredients because I just thought it was incredible that you know I did a pop up outside my front door. This is how this all started. I say pop up. It was literally I borrowed this, I borrowed that, and opportunist moment trying to make a buck. Um, and you know, all these people had these questions about the food and the ingredients, and so many people didn't even know where Ghana was in the world or in Africa. So I was like, wow, this is huge. Like, there's a lot of work to do. Um, and so Zoe's Garden kind of Kitchen was, to cut a very long story short, born from that. And this cookbook, um, yeah, I hope is, um, you know, a love letter to Ghana, um, an introduction to the flavors. It's by no means a Bible or the Bible of Ghanaian food, but it's, very much, you know, my relationship with the food and the ingredients and what I think is worth shouting about. I mean, there's a lot more to shout about that's in the book, but you can't write I think what's cool about it is that um, as a guy who, I mean, I'm a Yankee. I'm a, I'm a full-on Yankee. My mom is from Massachusetts. I'm from New Jersey. Um, but I've spent an enormous amount of time in the American South. And I've spent an enormous amount of time cooking Southern food, you know, and it's funny because you look at the parallels, you know, for obvious reasons and, you know, okra and black eyed peas. And there's some question of where collards are originally from, but there's a lot of truly American ingredients. They're actually from Africa. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I mean, this is another thing. It's like just that whole relationship. I mean, high on the hog and Dr. Jessica Harris and Stephen Sutterfield have done an amazing job. I don't know if you saw that documentary yet on Netflix, um, discussing the relationship between um, various parts of West Africa, including the South, and obviously, you know, Michael uh, 
Michael Twitty? Yeah. Twitty, that's it. I always want to put an extra letter in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> um, Michael Twitty, you know, has done enormous work on that topic as well. But here, you know, in the UK, that was a conversation I was trying to explain. It's like, you know, so many dishes, in, not just in the southern parts of America, but across the world have been influenced by Africa. Um, and yeah, you know, even things like some jollof that we have from uh, Silsax, actually from Senegal originally, the Wolof people, the tribe there, gave birth to Benachin, they call it, and it got the nickname jollof across West Africa because of the Wolof people. But, you know, that could be the mother of jambalaya or, um, you know, things like paella, all those kinds of dishes. Yeah, there's a perlu in the, in the uh, dish similar to it called perlu and low country chicken bog. They're all very right. similar to hall of rice. Yeah. And, um, oh, I like that you pronounced that proper. Woo! <laughs> Doing that. Not messing around, Hank. I love it. Um, and then, um, you know, you mentioned okra stew, which is like the mother of, I think, you guys, what do you call it? Gumbo? Gumbo, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's just so many influences. Um, from the, you know, candied yams, with yams come from why do you call sweet potatoes yams <laughs> all of that even just how you call food goes back to um how it was being transported during the you know for want of better language to describe it the slave trade because the people from west africa those enslaved people what knowledge they brought with them what ingredients they brought with them on those ships and how they repurposed what they had to hand to survive and to live and to have a taste of home. And that turned into much of what is now considered Southern American traditional cooking. And of course, that then influenced the rest of the United States. So, you know, in many ways, and I said this in the case, in many ways, this food now is like modern British, modern European. It's not just modern African or modern Ghanaian anymore. It's like this, this these flavors, this food, which has spread so far and wide across the world um, in various ways you know from, but even in brazil there's so many dishes that you know but for a few letters in the spelling of the name they're the same dish pronounced slightly differently because of different languages yeah um, brazilians uh to me brazilian sounds like i can speak spanish so brazilians sound like they're speaking spanish but they're really drunk it's just a <laughs> <laughs> I hope no Brazilians are offended. I mean, I, I, love, I love the Brazilian language, uh, but I'm not going to pretend that I can you know, say any of those words because I can't. I'm, I barely use English very well, and I'm an English person. So, um, I don't, yeah, I don't like to murder other people's language. But, you know, there's, there's, there's so many dishes from the fritters to Akara, Ajara. Um, and then even in parts of, you know, you look at in the, the other side of the world in the Far East and Southeast Asia and the commonality of ingredients and the ways in which people use them, it's so familiar as well. So, you know, food, as you know, I'm sure you know and have said yourself, is this amazing tool to get people to realize there's more in common than there is in difference. You know, I used to do those kind of kitchen as a tool to open the conversation, to kind of dispel some stereotypes and myths around what the food was. They, there's such a huge stigma that it's unhealthy. There's such a huge um, ignorance to the fact. I mean, this is changing now, but I've been talking about this for 12 years. You know, when I first, you know, people used to ask me things like, oh, but don't you just eat goat meat? I mean, no, not goat meat. Goat meat's great. You just eat meat, gorilla meat or bush meat. Or, oh, my God, you know, really? You know, <laughs> there were some really strange, bizarre stereotypes going on. Um, and, yeah, the whole health thing and... 
it was inaccessible. And like when you get down to bare bones, actually, yes, we have some beautiful indigenous flavors and ingredients, but we also have had, you know, the spice roots coming through and the spice trade and various colonizers. Um, and all of those different things have had an influence on what is Ghanaian you know, food today, you know. I think it's um, interesting. Let's, let's start with that for a second. So in looking at pretty much, you know, I'm talking mostly about sub-Saharan Africa here, with the exception of like Ethiopia and Somalia. If you look at country to country to country to country, it's just cooking. It's not like there's not a lot of crazy or weird ingredients to the American palate in the guts of West African or Central African or Southern African cooking. It's just, it's vegetables. It's, it, you know, even the grains and the, and the starches are fairly similar. I mean, fufu is a little different, but I mean, it's not a hell of a lot different from mashed potatoes if you really think about it. Exactly. Um, you know, and then you do have a few things that I want to talk about in a second. And you outline these in your book, the really interesting spices and herbs that, to my mind, make a Ghanaian or a West African dish like, oh, that's that flavor that I had at that restaurant that one time and couldn't reproduce. So, gotcha, yeah. I mean, yeah. And I love talking about some of these as well. I mean, all of them, obviously. But, and one of the things I've done recently is to try and get people better acquainted with some of these. I'm assuming you're talking about the single origin type stuff, like the Ashanti pepper, kebab, and mm-hmm. chili peppers. And yeah, the quintia and agushi. And, and yeah. it's funny, yeah. I just dried a whole bunch of melon seeds uh, yesterday because why buy it when you can just scoop them out of a melon and dry them? Exactly. And, you know, so this is like one of the battles I had with publishers, or the first publishers, not the US publishers. Um, well, to call it as a battle is a bit of an exaggeration. I, I did. <laughs> I took my decision quite quickly. I was very naive then. But, you know, this conversation about um, having to replace spices and ingredients, and it's like, you're exactly right. Like, so the type of melon that you use in Ghana is really going to be different to the melon seed that you use where you are, but you're still going to get the same creaminess and texture. You're going to get quite close to the thing, right? Um, and having to, I don't know, there's a lot of times when it was, felt like a huge negotiation around whether to include um, some of the single origin spices because the argument was people wouldn't be able to get it. You know? And that's kind of why I went on that later point to open a spice shop myself. So it's like, well, here's the full circle. Here's the recipes, here's the ingredients to get it all together. Well, I mean, um, enough for nothing. Every single one of the spices and herbs that you mentioned in the book, I got on two-day prime on Amazon. I mean, it's not hard. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Damn you, Amazon. You're yeah, but you know, efficient. it makes it super yeah. easy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is super easy. Obviously, I promote buying African and buy African when it comes to these ingredients. That's a whole other subject around decolonizing the food industry. But, you know, get it where you can. It's like, you know, if you have to buy it from a white-owned business, I hope that the white-owned business is, you know, paying the farmers fairly and there's a good solid supply chain going on where everyone's treated well. Yeah. I mean, I sell stuff through Amazon too. And it's like, and most of the people who you're buying it from, or at least the places that I'm getting it through are from Africa, but they're selling yeah. via Amazon the same way I sell my books via Amazon. It's like, I mean, yeah. nobody I mean, can beat them on shipping. It's just Amazon, crazy. <laughs> I, I know. Amazon is at this point a necessary evil. It feels like. Yeah. Um, there's nothing wrong with a speedy, efficient service, you know. But um, anyway, let's not detract the conversation exactly, about exactly. Amazon is good or bad. The point is, you picked out one website where you can get it, but there are hundreds. Um, and, you know, you can talk to people like Ada Blooms in Canada, 
Um, Effie Spice doesn't, I think, do single origins yet, but she also does um, Spice Friends. Um, oh my God, there's so many, I can't remember them all now, but you know, across America, I'm seeing more and more uh, purveyors, African women in particular, hmm. um, bringing the spi- those spices and ingredients, like the whole grains, like the bombara beans, like the phonio and things like that. I mean, Pierre's kind of owning that regard. With the phonio? Yeah. For yeah, those of you out there who don't know, phonio is a grain uh, from West Africa. It's sort of the, think of West African teff, if you, if you had to. It's like, so Ethiopia yeah. and Somalia has got teff and West Africa has got phonio. It's a little bit like millet, kind of, sort of. It's a little bit like millet. It kind of also sort of is a tiny bit like, I don't know, like um, quinoa or couscous. Because you can oh, yeah. it in the same way and you can cook it, you know, excuse me, but just um, like it will absorb liquid in the same way that couscous does. So talk to our listeners about, so if you were to explain to John Q. Public, which you are at this point, um, what would be the fundamental kind of flavor blocks of like, what does Ghanaian food taste like? Like what's, how could you place it in a bigger context? Oh, that's so hard. Thanks. Because um, the Ghana is a huge country. I mean, it's not as big as the United States. But it's like, say, 50 times the size of the UK. So it has these really different variances in landscape and tropical climate and non-tropical climate. So different things grow in different places. So, for example, things like fermented maize dough, um, which we call kenke. Um, predominantly, we talk about gar kenke and fancy kenke one. Is, they're both fermented maize dough, essentially. It's like made into a porridge and, you know, packed together they, they're very very similar to tamale um mm. so things like that while much of ghana eats kenke and that is definitely you know that would be on the top 10 list of things that Ghanaians eat it's predominantly like most fermented foods like dawa like rekospin like prekose um from the north which is um i still think it is predominantly muslim in the north of ghana as it happens but they have a lot because of the aridness of the climate they rely a lot on very, very preserved things and fermented foods. Whereas, you know, on the, the East Coast bordering Togo, you have the, the Volta runs all the way up that side. And so you have access to like Nile perch and catfish and tilapia. Um, and a lot of that will also be getting dried and smoked and preserved. But there'll be a lot more seafood. I mean, not seafood, but, you know, fish. It's, eating there along with something more like banku so um you make banku in a similar way to you make fufu <laughs> kind of <laughs> with a lot of effort yeah you kind of beat on it right until it gets uh, yeah. kind of spongy and puffy kind of make cassava or whatever your starch vegetable is if you're making fufu to um, a dough essentially you pound it with water until it's a dough on low heat um and then you can shape it into this big gelatinous because they're very very starchy ingredients so they have this really really joyful like wobble and stickiness <laughs> it's a bit like mochi exactly. oh my god that's such a good example yeah mochi we were just making some uh, moringa mochi last night um yeah it's a bit like that kind of texture not quite gelatinous like that but yeah there is a very starchy stickiness to it I obviously pinch that with your fingers. And, mm, I notice you're using your right hand, and it's it's hilarious. I'm left-handed, 
And so when I used to work at the Ethiopian restaurant, they made me sit on my left hand to eat. <laughs> yeah, there's etiquette around which hands. Exactly. So for, all, for those of you out there who don't know, um, in a lot of parts of the world, you wipe your ass with your left and you eat with your right. <laughs> <laughs> and that is still true today. Um, but yeah, and then, you know, sorry, and then obviously on the south coast there where Accra is capital, you have the you have the Atlantic right brush up against you, and you have an amazing variety of seafood proper. So you, you know everything from barracuda and prawns to squid and octopus and all of the glories of the sea are available on the Cape Coast. You know, um, so it really depends where you are. But I have to narrow down kind of a trilogy of ingredients. They're actually really super simple because it's um, like pepper, ginger, and onion. Hmm. feature in almost every single dish that I I cook and that I've ever eaten in Ghana, I'm pretty sure, unless it was a dessert. Even then, there's probably ginger in it. Um, and you're talking and so black with, pepper. No, sorry, chili pepper. Oh, and okay. Hot pepper. Hot pepper, gotcha. For me, that's Scotch bonnet. Some people, it'll be habanero. Some people, it's bird's eye chili. You know, ground hot chili. It's funny, actually. In Ghana, the word shito means hot pepper. But the word chito actually is her better pronunciation of it. Chito is um, it's a really beautiful condiment. The recipe's in the book, actually. If you haven't tried it, I think you should. <laughs> I should. I, I grow scotch bonnets as it happens. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. A friend of mine smuggled the seed back from Barbados. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. I found out that scotch bonnets were illegal in the USA. And I was like, what the hell? They're not illegal. Uh, That's a big lie. <laughs> it's a true. I mean, I know. Like, I, I can't. Every I can't, time I use scotch bonnets, I'm like, it's contraband. <laughs> oh, I mean, well, technically, you're not supposed to like bring the actual scotch bonnet, but you can grow them here. I, I mean, I used to grow them on a windowsill in New York City. Well, yeah, you must. Because, yeah, we grow um, bird's eye chilies and bell peppers on our windowsill in New York City. And okra now, actually. I'm, you grow okra on a windowsill? Yeah, isn't that incredible? That is weird because they usually like I showed you on that uh, on the Instagram post. I'm growing that Yuma red okra that grows in the desert because I live in a desert. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like nine feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, but that also it's. Um, oh my god! I should introduce you to um, uh, Jordan. I went down to Asheville. You know the cookbook, the whole opera. Uh huh. I do. By, by Chris Smith. Um, I went to visit Chris Smith in Asheville to visit his opera farm because I'm obsessed with opera as an ingredient. And um, he has like over 160 varieties growing there or something. And while I was on the farm working and as it happened, finding out about other things like taro that he was growing and rice and various things. I mean, he was doing some of that in his back garden. I was like, oh, my God, this is the life. Um, Anyway, Okra, and then there's this guy there called Jordan, who I'll remember his surname is after this, send it to you and introduce you. But he was a biochemist slash some other stuff from Arizona, also obsessed with Okra. And he's like, currently extrapolating or trying to find out all the different uses from you know the fiber pods, so the fibers that come from the Okra to the meat with the, the aloe and rebranded. The, the slime from okra is aloe. Aloe? Okay, so in, in, in Mexican <laughs> Spanish, it's called babas. Babas. Oh, yep. God, that sounds fun. <laughs> so you want to you, you learn a trick that you I may already know? I can't, I, can't, 
can't steal the Mexican word for it though. That's <laughs> cultural appropriation. No, they'd be, um, they'd be happy. <laughs> no pasa nada, way. But anyway, this part is that Baba is incredibly good for you. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not going to say what the health claims are on, on it, mm-hmm. but um, people should Google like okra, mucus, okra, aloe, okra slime, whatever it is, and health benefits. And like there is innumerable. And also it's really great for people with diabetes because it produces its own sugars. So it's like a natural sweetener. Mm. Um, it, it's all kinds of wonderful things. And he's talking about using them to like make trainers, turn them into housing material. Um, yeah. He's got okra, big plans vegetable for okra, in the future. okra, this guy. <laughs> yeah. I do have a he's, cooking tip for you about awesome. okra. Said I learned this. So I was at a, a cooking event in Napa. It was one of those heritage fire things. It's a big fest, food festival. And the chef next to me, uh, she's from India, right? And they, they do a lot of okra. And so she's grilling okra. And like, well, how do you deal with the slime? She's like, so you mix okra with some sort of powdered acid. So she did powdered green mangoes, which are super acidic. And so when she grilled them, there was no slime at all. So I'm like, huh, let's try that out. So the next time I did an okra dish, I cut the okra because it was going to be in a stew, right? So I tossed it. It was a, uh, it's a, oh God, where's the stew from? Oh, it's from, um, from um, like, Turkey, Persia, Jordan area. And uh, so I toss the okra with fruit fresh, which is citric acid that you use to like make jams and jellies and things. It's an acetophile. Oh, yeah. Citric acid, right? <laughs> so I tossed the cut okra with this fruit fresh while I was doing everything else. And when it, the okra came time to go in the stew, like normally it's going to be a slime fest, right? Yeah. None. Not any slime <laughs> at all. It was amazing. Wow. That is a great tip. Right. It's a great tip because my thing was always just not to avoid the slime. I was always just stop cutting it. Don't cut it so much. <laughs> well, that's also true. <laughs> <laughs> like my tip is just cut it once lengthways and yeah, pan fry it or grill it or temper it, um, and it's delicious. But yeah, not to say that. But I'm warming back again now to the what was it? The bubas, buba? The babas. <laughs> Babas, the babas side of things, um, because I'm curious, um, really, really curious about how could you make this, like the okra slime, the okra babas, the okra aloe, a feature of the dish. I mean, lots of people love it. You know, that's why okra stew has got such a following because of that, mm-hmm. um, you know, that very mucusy, sticky part to it. But if, if it's never been a texture that I've been able to get on with very well, so I've always just been mindful of how many times I chop it and careful not to chop the pods up too much because I find that that releases a lot of extra silkiness you might not want as well. <laughs> but I'm going to try this. We're actually serving okra on Friday night, so I'm going to try this. Yeah. I, it's just a fruit fresh citric acid powder that you use in canning. I mean, I suppose you could use any kind of acidic powder, but that seems to be the thing that's most easily found in American supermarkets. Sounds, yeah, sounds good. Quick shout out to one of our sponsors, which is eFish. eFish delivers fresh, never frozen, wild, American caught day boat seafood right to your doorstep. These guys have supplied seafood for every Michelin three star restaurant in the country and even the Pope. And now they're shipping to you listeners. What's unique about eFish is that they don't have a warehouse full of fish. They simply connect you straight to the source. 
This means that in most cases, your product is still swimming when you placed your order. Their business operates the same way I order fish for my fishermen friends across the country. The fish goes straight from the dock to you overnight. It doesn't get much fresher than that unless you catch it yourself. eFish takes an incredibly personable approach to purchasing seafood online. If you aren't sure exactly what you're looking to purchase, they are more than happy to help with recommendations and pass on their wealth of knowledge about seafood and the products they are selling. With eFish, you can always be sure that your fish is ethically sourced, never treated with chemicals, and is handled with care from the minute it's hooked until it arrives at your doorstep. If you want fresh seafood for your next dinner, check out eFish.com. That is e-fish.com. Get 10% off your first order with my code HuntGatherTalk. Again, and that is e-fish.com. So let's talk seafood. So you've mentioned in your very brief tour of Ghanaian gastronomy, the river fish and then the ocean. So um, one thing that I have noticed that's pretty cool about that whole area, yeah. and, it make, and it makes sense because not everybody has a refrigerator, is the prevalence of dried and smoked seafood. So talk to me a little bit about the breadth of that that you yeah. found. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is up and down the country, no matter where you are. I mean, I did talk specifically about the north being extra adept and skilled in that those techniques because of their environment and the climate they live in. Um, but, you know, like I've been into, down into Jamestown in um, Accra, which is like where all the fishing boats come in. And just everywhere you're going to see smokers going, the barracuda, mackerel, which they call salmon. <laughs> Do they really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Every time I was trying to tell them it's mackerel, they're like, no, salmon. Um, but yes, smoked mackerel, barracuda, herring, shrimp, crayfish, you know, everything, everything, everything is predominantly smoked because of the, yeah, mainly because of the climate and the temperature. Obviously, you know, it's, um, it's, it's an interesting dichotomy, actually. And that, that's, true, that's all along the coast as well as all, every part of Ghana that I've been to. There's been plenty and plenty, plenty of fermented and smoked fishes. Um, but, yeah, sorry, I was just going to say that, like, I think in the last 15 years or so, obviously there's been a lot of investment into West Africa, a lot of investment specifically into Ghana, actually. Um, and that, you know, new money has brought new... Wealth, let's say. So there's been this burgeoning, not burgeoning, there is a huge middle class now, in, especially in places like Accra. And there's this kind of this dissonance with like um, traditional ingredients and traditional dishes because there's this aspirational looking to the West, so chasing kind of French and Italian and considered to be more aspiring foods. Well, we did the same um, thing in the United States in the 50s and 60s. If you wanted to go to a fancy restaurant, it was always French. Yeah, I mean, the same thing happened here in the UK as well. I mean, French cuisine has dominated the gastronomy started before anybody else's. <laughs> well, I don't know. The Chinese and the Indians might have a say in that. <laughs> oh, yeah, true. <laughs> in Europe, sorry. Yeah. Gosh. Europe. Um, forget where I am in the world. Um, but, yeah, so, and then, but at the same time, you have increased refrigeration and those kinds of facilities. So it's just a bit dissonant to me because people still regularly uh, are smoking and doing these things with those fishes and different varieties of seafood, but I'm not sure that as many people are actually eating that 
type of food in the, in the same amount or quantity as they used to. Well, sure, because I mean, it's just like everywhere where, you know, you smoke and you salt things because you can't get them fresh, right? So, yeah. like, if you've ever caught herring, I mean, herring go bad in like 48 hours, even with refrigeration. <laughs> and like, if you're, if wow. you're, if you net herring or, or mackerel or any of these little oily fish that like I have, you got to get them on salt. If you don't have freezers or refrigerators, you got to get them on salt like within hours. And otherwise it's going to stink to holy hell. And it makes a good garden fertilizer, but not good eats. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, this is what you can see happening down in Jamestown. It's like the halls come in. You have like this very, very small part of the market that's fresh, but the majority of it is going like, back that say not even very far from the beach like 400 yards maybe and then there's just lots of like you know i'm gonna say homemade kind of rickety looking but very effective you know smokers everywhere just non-stop for miles and just smoke cleaning into the air over jamestown in fact you could probably be in any part of accra and see the smoke coming up and um, it will be the smoking do you know? Do you know if they have a specific wood that they like to smoke over, or is it just whatever you got? Goodness, I wish I knew. Honestly, I would say because you know Jamestown still considered something of like a slum town. It's not the wealthiest part of Accra by any stretch. And as I said, you know they're kind of makeshift made things. You've got like these blocks that have been found somewhere, and then almost like handmade riddles. Um, so I can't speak to the specificity of what is being wood or charcoal being used, but I imagine it's not um, necessarily being brought in from somewhere else. I bet. I bet though. Like if you if you if you talk to those guys, there's going to be some definite preferences. Oh, you're probably right. I'm not. Um, <laughs> I'm not the um, barbecue um, queen, I'm afraid, but. Um, but yeah, I've never I've never made that inquiry. But maybe you're right. Maybe they're getting it in from Elmina or Tina or um, somewhere just along the coast. I'm trying to remember what it what it looks like on there. What I can see is the structure. No, I'm not sure on that one. To be honest, baby. Yeah. How are they? How are they used? Um, like well, they're either rehydrated in the same way that you might rehydrate. Um, salted cod or something um, or they're used as like um, sometimes they can be used as like a stock hmm. um, like you get a tilapia head and it might just be used as like a bullion kind of thing for flavour smoked tilapia head like fish bullion um, and very often of course they go into you know some of the more famous stews and different like that, so some of this is a very, very slow cook, like a palm nut soup or a garden egg soup, um, some or something like that. But yeah, I mean, I love smoked fishes, but there is a, the convenience of being able to get some of those things fresh does speed up the cook time considerably. <laughs> it's a real different flavor, though. I mean, one thing I've seen throughout West Africa is the combination of, of dried or smoked fish plus. Uh, either birds or mammals. It's fairly unusual in world gastronomy to have like, you know, fish and... Oh, the surf and turf. Yeah, exactly. Like surf and turf in the same yeah. dish. But you see it a lot in West Africa. Oh, yeah, all the time. In fact, I mean, even groundnut soup, um, it's not just fish. It's, it's all like 
you'd have something like groundnut soup, for example, and you'd have like land snails in there and crab and a bit of goat. And maybe if there was chicken, you might have a bit of chicken, but you're definitely going to get a bit of mac. But like in my grandma's house, they're all the different proteins that are going to go into a groundnut soup. Um, and that's really, really common in lots and lots of places. I can't think like when you're eating a meat base, unless it's like light soup and you're probably just going to have goat light soup or chicken light soup. You know, it's specifically flavoured by the protein. Yeah, there's a lot of surf and surf that goes on. But equally, there's a lot of, you know, vegan dishes and vegetarian dishes and there's a lot of leaves and there's a lot of, I don't know, it's just like there's such a variety. I find it very, very difficult to narrow narrow it all down. But fermentedness um, and smoky ingredients, because even like Scotch bonnets have a smoky profile, don't they? Um, smoky sweet. But yeah, they are very strong profiles. And of course, a lot of smoked ground crayfish and prawns get eaten as well. Yep. The dried smoked shrimp uh, are kind of a big deal. And that's actually translated to Louisiana. You see that in Louisiana too. Oh, crayfish are big down there, right? Well, not, <laughs> not only crawfish, but um, dried shrimp shows up. You see, dried shrimp is often a, a secret ingredient in gumbo in Cajun country. Oh, there you go. And yeah, because the same would be true in an okra soup. Like, it's a strange one, actually, because I think there might even be more fish consumed than meat, potentially, um, which sounds like a strange thing to say, but I don't think meat is, historically anyway, because it might not be the case now, but going back some, like 20, 30 years, I don't think meat was like an everyday occasion. So I think... There was a, a big reliance on your smoked mackerels and tilapias in particular as like an everyday household thing and barracuda probably. And actually herring. <laughs> they, they all come up all the time. <laughs> um, and sardines. Can't forget sardines. Like I it's, remember my dad talking about the lunchbox was basically sardines and cane cake. <clears throat> like, uh, like canned sardines or smoked dried sardines? Well, they would have been dried sardines cooked into a stew. Ah, gotcha. Yeah. Have you figured out or talked to anybody who does like, because I'm kind of interested in like, so, okay, if I'm a cook doing this thing, like this is a thing where I live, like the fish and meat kind of combination. I'm kind of interested in the thinking behind it. Like, are they trying to get a smoky flavor to the rest of the stew? Are they trying to get some additional salt in it? Are they trying to get an umami thing going on? Like, what's the rationale behind the combination of fish and not fish in so many dishes? I think it's about flavor. And I think it's about choosing ingredients that you think are going to give you the best sustenance. Do you know what I mean? I think it's about having the balance of flavor. And there, there, there's a lot of complexity, even though some of the food is really simple. There's complex flavors, like... Um, <clears throat> Even those spices we talked about, you know, whether it's grains of salem or grains of paradise, when you crack open those uh, pipes of peppercorn and you smell them, there's a huge amount of complexity in the tiny thing that you've just cracked open. So, for example, you know, whether it's the, let's say it's grains of salem and you open that up and you're going to get citrus, you're going to get some florality, but you're going to get some smoky barbecue coming out of it. You're also going to get some eucalyptus, like these menthol-type eucalyptus notes. So all in that one tiny pod, you have this huge amount of different flavor. And I think that 
that is quite um, typical of Ghanaian cuisine. If I had to be do that whole thing where you try and narrow cuisine down to what is it like, it's it's this balance of complexity of flavour that tastes really simple, but the cooking of it is very simple as well. Do you know what I mean? There's not a huge amount of fuss, um, but there is a, a great amount of depth of flavour. And I think that's what it's about. It's about bringing in the different textures, the different um, health aspects, because there's a lot of, especially traditionally, a, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of food is consumed for what it, the health benefits are considered to be, you know, because there are so many health benefits to so many of the ingredients. And people would take things specifically to, you know, for digestion or heart return or hmm. constipation or whatever the malady is. Um, you could like have your dinner based on what's up with you that day. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. So there's a lot of different factors going on at once. I don't think anything is in isolation, but I think predominantly it's about robust flavor um, and getting the things you need from each of the things that are in that pot. So talk to me and about some... Oh, sure. That wouldn't be an everyday, like, no, no one in my grandma's house would cook in and Coin with all of those things in it every day, but maybe once a month, you know, it'd be like, oh, treat ourselves to this big feast of certitude. Well, it's kind of like making a gumbo. You know, you don't make a gumbo every day. Exactly, yeah. You're going to put in... And the same is true for a couple of other things, you know. There are some... And I say that in the book. There are a couple of dishes that it's like, just go low and slow. It's worth it. Take the time um, to do this one properly. And then there's other times where it's like, here's a bit of a cheat, you know. You don't need to do it um, necessarily. It doesn't need to take four hours. You can do it in two or one and a half. Hey, everybody. A quick shout-out to one of our sponsors, and that is Filson. Outdoorsmen, hunters, and anglers have trusted Filson for unfailing goods since the 1897 Alaskan Gold Rush. Available in retail stores right now, Filson dry bag totes, duffels, and backpacks will keep your gear dry no matter how wet the conditions. And while you're there, be sure to check out their waterproof Skagit jacket and cap. They're built for fishing in the nastiest weather. When the sun comes out, Filson's Twin Lakes shirts, barrier neck gaiter, and angler caps will keep you cool and prevent painful sunburns. See it all at filson.com. So Fante Fante, I have seen eight zillion versions of this dish. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it, it's a pretty famous West African fish dish, and I've made it a couple of times. <laughs> you know, how like like a gumbo has to have at least one of the three thickeners, which is filet gumbo, uh, okra, or a roux, and usually it has two of the three. Like there's the rules. Like it's not a gumbo if it doesn't have X. It's not fante fante if it doesn't have what? Because it's it's not it, fante. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not fante fante if it doesn't have palm oil. Red palm oil. Mm. Um, because you can swap out the fishes. Like in my book, it's chale sauce, but let's say, you know, in any other West African country, maybe in Nigeria, they call that type of red sauce atadindi, atadindi, my Nigerian. Um, so, and then it's like, okay, what are your local herbs and spices? So I think, yeah, I mean, for my grandmother, anyway, the fish was important because she's so it was a snapper. But um, I don't know that that's true in every version. Like, how, what's the most common fish you've seen used fancy fancy? Because she is fancy, which is where it comes from. 
Oh, so okay. I stuck like Fancy is a tribe of people from Elmina on the coast, down the coast of West Africa. So, um, you know, I've stuck very closely to the Fancy Fancy that she made. But, um, you know, for, yeah, so I would say it's not going to be, without that depth of, you know, because red palm oil has that really lovely, smoky earthiness to it mm-hmm. um, and a silkiness it brings as well. Um, and yes, yeah, so I think Cassie's that and the red snapper is not going to be not good enough for my grandmother anyway. So you could, I mean, but red snapper, I've seen it done with a zillion other fish other than red snapper, but. Yeah, but I mean, I mean if you ask me, what is it with if it doesn't have red? Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's my answer, red palm oil. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's easy enough to find because, uh, I mean, my local supermarket has it. Palm oil. Mm-hmm. Um, the red stuff. Yeah, red palm oil, also, or it's called Zumi. Um, there's a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of chit chat about palm oil and whether it's good or bad and good for you, or bad for you, or good for the environment, or bad for the environment. And my answer to that is A, you can find just so called, and I say so called because it's like I'm not necessarily sure that the lens on these things is always the most appropriate or correct lens to have on what is sustainable and what isn't. But let's say, I believe in sustainability. I know there are sustainable brands of red palm oil that exist. I think uh, some of them include Caratino. Um, I think Nativa do one now as well. But when it comes to red palm oil, as in like, what are the issues with it? Um, as it concerns health, I think it's a non sequitur, honestly, because you can find as much research to say that it's full of antioxidants and vitamins and things that are good for you, as you can find, say, that it's bad for cholesterol and yada, 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 like any other oil. So, you know, it's about consuming in moderation, I think, when it comes to the health choices there, whether you're going to get refined or unrefined, I suppose. But when it comes to the environment, it's like there has been some awful deforestation and displacement of orangutans in particular, I believe, because of poor farming of the palm fruit that makes palm oil. But much of that, there's like white palm oil and then there's red palm oil. So the red palm oil is what we use cooking in West Africa. Right, right. The red stuff is the stuff I always buy. Yeah. The white stuff is generally the stuff that shows up in products that you would be think is strange, like it's in a Mars bar or it's in toilet cleaner or it's in it goes into <laughs> very strange things because there is a part of the palm nut that they extract this particular um, piece of ingredient out of so when you're farming for that that's actually the palm oil that has been causing the worst devastating unsustainable practices over the last 30 40 years it's not your smallholder farms in Ghana and Nigeria and other West African countries who are, you know, farming in a very um, sort of old agricultural model, you know, without pesticides, without huge um, machines and without, you know, taking down whole forests and stuff like that. They don't have the, the money to do that. Right. <laughs> and also it's their environment. So, um 
you know, I think the story, the narrative around palm oil has been quite misleading for a number of years. Um, in fact, if one is anyone's interested, they should Google an article on palm oil by Yuande Komalse. Uh, um, sure, a really great piece about it last year. But yeah, there's a lot of um, misconception around it, and there are certain dishes where it's kind of essential. Like you mentioned, fancy fancy and red red too. One. Exactly, red red. Uh, so if you wanted to say, hey, American guy who wants to uh, cook really awesome fish from West Africa, what would you tell that person? You need to learn this, this, and this, or you need this and that ingredient to do a really good job of representing kind of a Ghanaian, you know, fish dish, you know, like, is it grilling with, you know, is there a spice mix? Is there a technique? Uh, is there a particular set of fish that people should be looking for? I think the building board, as I said, you've got the trilogy there usually, right? Of ginger, onion, and a hot pepper. So choose a hot pepper that you get on with well. Don't try and go all scotch bonnet on it. You don't love a big heat because it's a big heat, even though for me it's a slow rising, warm, smoky heat. A lot of people find it overpowering. But you've got your trilogy. And then um, for me, it's all about the spices. Uh, so get as close as you can to whatever the recipe is calling for you to do. And if not, um, don't just leave it out. I would try and find a replacement. So, you know, for something like, let's say it's Qbeb, and you, you don't, you, for some reason you can't find Qbeb, and it's a requirement for a recipe. So be Googling. I mean, I can tell you that allspice together with cracked black pepper will get you close to Qbeb. Um, as a flavor profile, but you can like have a look to be like, what's a good substitute for this or that if you're struggling with any of the spices? Because I think they, so many of them are what makes the dish. You know, mm. as you say, you can swap in and out. Like, you know, I don't have your expertise when it comes to seafood tank, but when it comes to fish, predominantly in West African cooking, you're looking at quite hardy, meaty. Um, and or oily fishes. So, I mean, everyone can get mackerel, right? But if you can't, you can get salmon. And if you can't, you know, whatever amigo-rich fish is as local to you as possible. And that's the other part of it, really, is like explore the flavors, but try and keep as much local as possible. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just something I'm mindful of when I'm cooking. Um, so look for like good, you know, for like, so, I don't know, do you have monkfish? Sure. Then you will have different fish in different parts of the country as well. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the whole point of my cookbook, actually, is to just mix and match. But <laughs> but there's, there's sort of sort of structural things, like you mentioned the oily fish and the sort of big meaty yeah. fish, and you know, those are definitely big classes of fish. Where yeah. what about like uh, what about cooking techniques? I mean, there's an awful lot of stews for sure, uh, but yeah. beyond that, there's a lot of barbecue. There's a lot of mm. grilling. Um, and the key to that is always going to be in the marinade and the quality of the cuts that you choose to buy, obviously. So, um, you know, like we do a lot of on fire, well, things like chichinga, which is um, beef strips coated in um, a suya seasoning in Ghana, we call it, in Nigeria, they call it yaji, like a peanut based, um, smoky hot spice mix. And you can put that on any kind of meat, honestly, or any kind of vegetable as well. Um, 
but yeah, good marinade with those kind of spices, um, techniques. I mean, like for something like plantain, one of the other cornerstones I would suggest of Ghanaian cooking is like we have kind of a built-in zero waste policy. So for something like plantain that lives for like, I don't know, nine or ten weeks, it's green, that ends its life black, we have a good manipulation of the ingredient through its entire life cycle to be able mm-hmm. to cook it optimally for whatever stage of ripeness it's at. So paying attention to things like that, for example, if something as simple as plantain, which like anybody can cook plantain, it's not hard, but choosing the right type of plantain in its life cycle for the dish you want to make. Because also there's like a hundred different recipes that you can make with plantain from right. later. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like Latin America too, of course. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's endless, endless recipes. Hey, do you know where plantains uh, are from? I actually don't know where they're from. I feel like they want to say India. Or... Uh, that makes sense. Like Southeast Asia, maybe? Yeah, I don't Southeast know. Asia. It's I knowable. Think came, <laughs> I think they came with um, colonizers. Probably, yeah. Well, here's a funny one, though. Um, there's a very famous African peanut that's not actually from Africa. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Really? <laughs> yeah. So African peanuts are bambara beans, as you well know. And, and, but, well, you know, we, don't, we don't call them peanuts, they're groundnuts. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, so there's the actual, there's a, this African peanut, it's trippy. So peanuts are from, <laughs> they're from the Western Hemisphere. That's where they're from. And so they were bought by the Portuguese traders kind of before slavery over to West Africa. And so oh. it so it's like in the it's in the early 1500s. So it shows up in West Africa, and then West Africa's like, "Cool, this is this is awesome. We're going to grow this." And so they do, and then they brought that particular land race of peanut back to the Western Hemisphere during slavery. So it's super weird. It's got this kind of double. It's very similar to how like the English and the Mayflower brought domesticated turkeys, and when they arrived. They looked exactly like the wild turkeys that the Indians had. <laughs> the Indians were like, hey, where'd you get them damn turkeys? <laughs> so it's pretty, pretty crazy, weird Colombian exchange stuff. <laughs> God, it's odd, isn't it? What was I um, talking about the other day? The Liberia and the fact that, you know, when so many slaves were freed, there was a wanting to restrict the amount of free slaves basically running, as they thought, a mock across America. So they sent quite a big number of freed slaves to Liberia, I think. Mm-hmm. And now the cuisine there is very much a mashup of, you know, because obviously slaves from West Africa went to, the, as we discussed, the yeah. States of America and then reinvented the food there and then brought it back with them to West Africa, in the case of Liberia. So there's a really interesting, I mean, I've not been to Liberia yet, but I'd love to go to um, interesting kind of mix of um, Southern American cooking and really, really old traditional Liberian dishes. Yeah. I mean, we'll also think about it the north of Ghana, right? Corn's not from Africa. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and neither is, neither is uh, taro. Cassava's not from, from, uh, from the old world either. Cassava's from the new world. Dun, dun, dun. It's not from Southeast Asia. 
Oh no, it might be. Yeah, yeah. No, oh, it's funny. There's, there's the Colombian exchange is always endlessly fascinates me. You know, because it's just this. <laughs> I mean, if you think of an American garden, probably in English. Well, it's too cold and crappy in England for to grow most of the good crops. But like, if you tip it, my garden and every American's garden, it's corn, beans, squash, peppers, tomatoes. You know, those are like the glamour fruits and glamour vegetables that we all grow. And every one of them is from here. Hang on a second. I'm sorry. I have to challenge this because I'm quite, I'm really sure that I had a conversation with Jordan about corn and he was saying that it came from Egypt. No way. 100% not. (laughs) No way. No way. Corn was domesticated by uh, people before the Maya, like about 10,000 years ago in basically like the Mexico, Honduras kind of area. Of course it was. Hang on, I'm thinking of okra. We were talking about the fact that Egyptians ate okra. That's totally true. But we, like, but we were talking about the fact that what corn looked like during the time of the Mayans, Mayans and tasted like, it's probably very, very different to what maize has been you know, engineered for mass consumption as it is now. Sure, but you can still get really, really cool old varieties of corn um, in Mexico. And, and I, you can actually buy them in the, in the US. And yes, they're super different from the crappy yellow stuff that we grow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, anything mass produced would be great, is it? It's true. If it's been if it's been modified to look good, <laughs> to be consumable, that's um and nature doesn't care about Instagram, does it? <laughs> <laughs> that that's kind of the quote of the day. Nature doesn't care about Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> and she, and she bats last. <laughs> <laughs> and she laughs last as well. <laughs> yep. So let me uh let's uh so how do people find you on the series of tubes that we call the internet? And then your book comes out, you said in October, it's Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. Zoe's Ghana Kitchen comes out on October the nineteenth. Um and the website is zoe'sgarnakitchen.com. And I'm most often on Instagram, probably, though I'm, yeah, at Zoe Ajonia on Instagram. I tweet as little as possible. Yeah, I, I, I killed my <laughs> Twitter. everybody's benefit. <laughs> God, I kill, I kill my Twitter. It's kind of a hate machine. Oh, God. It's such a strange place to be with that. Such a little odd space. It was a lot cooler in 2008. Yeah, like way, way back in the day. Um. I guess like most platforms are very noisy now and it's, it's like it's quite hard to find the nuggets, isn't it? I know. So are you going to be doing events, like actual in-person events in the US uh, once your book's come out or I know with the whole COVID stuff? I mean, yeah, I mean, as soon as I'm able to, I mean, I know I'm doing a lot of virtual book club things, I think, planned. Um, but like I said, I'm hoping to be posting some dinners York in Brooklyn and Manhattan, maybe Harlem over the next few months. Um, and then we'll see what next year looks like. But I really would love to go on a bit of a food tour around the States because there's so much I don't know about um, you know, how this nation eats other than what I've consumed on television and documentaries. And I've made a lot of new friends with food here and I'd love to visit their kitchens and taste their food in their environment and maybe cook with them, you know? So I'm hoping that there's going to be a lot of next year. Yeah. Learning new things. Um, 
and sharing my, you know, our food, my food with people and how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you want to uh, come out to Northern California, let me know. Oh, I would love to. I'd love to go fishing. I'm a terrible fisher though, Hank. My brother-in-law basically does all the work when we go fishing. Do you get seasick? No, I've got not much patience, I think. Oh, I got the, I, I adjust the fishery for you. <laughs> yes, we'll 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 come out and we'll fish for Pacific rockfish. It is the it is what you fish for when you have no patience. Okay. <laughs> is it gonna taste good? Oh yeah, I mean, so uh, it's I don't kind of what would the English fish close be? The the sea bass would be the closest flavored fish, oh. or uh, or a um the other one that you that's real similar is uh oh hell um. Bream, sea bream would be oh, close yeah. uh, or yeah. snapper. Interesting. Very so nice. Yeah. They're all pretty similar. Yeah, I have to remember all the English fish because, you know, there's so many codfish relatives that they eat in, in Great Britain. There's like seven yeah. of them. And it's like pollock and haddock and, and cod and I don't know. There's like yeah. six others. That are, yes, exactly. Which doesn't live in, on our side of the Atlantic. This is another fascinating journey for me, actually. It's like um, I was just helping out in somebody else's kitchen a couple of weeks ago. And just like all the language in the kitchen is really different, like hotel pans instead of gastros. I'm like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Um, And now there's going to be this like new exploration of what is, what's sustainable to eat in the States in different places. Because everybody must be eating really differently. So, um, and also, yeah, finding those equivalents probably have to hit you up quite a lot to be like sure. what's the closest thing to seabird <laughs> what's the closest thing to monkfish um, well monkfish monkfish is the closest thing oh, yeah, to monkfish, you, you monkfish. <laughs> <laughs> at least it's not nunfish monkfish, oh, monkfish. or hagfish have you ever seen them <laughs> hagfish what's that oh it's the worst ever so they live at the very bottom of the sea so 5,000 10,000 feet down and they can completely tie themselves in a knot and they're like an eel. And if they get freaked out, which they do if you catch them, um, they, you, you talk, we were talking about the okra slime. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they can exude almost their body weight in slime as a defense mechanism. It, oh, wow. yeah. One of the most disgusting things I've ever seen in my life. Wow. That's an incredible gift, though. <laughs> <laughs> Very diplomatic. <laughs> Nature, you know, nature is like, I'm going to help you out. Could you imagine if like, if a person like person's walking down the street, right. And so somebody mugs you, right. But you could exude so much slime that the the mugger just slips away and you can run away. Yeah. Gross, but effective. Yeah. Uh, Do do we need to take a shower as the slimy person or just the criminal? I'm pretty sure they're they're kind of okay with it, I bet. Wow, hagfish. Ugh. That's a nice for me. I think the hagfish. <laughs> Not a, well, yeah, you, I mean, you catch them at, at really, really deep depths. You, they're like a bycatch when you catch uh, sablefish or black cod. I don't know if you've heard of that wow. fish or not, but. Sablefish. I just actually um, served some sablefish at that restaurant. Well, it wasn't really a restaurant, it was um, family reunion at um wine thing at Salamander Resort Spa. That was the first time I had come across sablefish, actually. It was beautiful. Oh, yeah. Silky. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's so gorgeous. Interesting. Well, cool. I'm going to let you go because we've been going for over an hour, but um, but I will definitely put all of your information in the show notes and link to your book. And hopefully we can sell you some books because it's an amazing book that I completely, totally vouch for. And I, I just said the English version and because I can read metric. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've updated quite a lot of the recipes actually. Oh, you have. Okay. So that's, that was a question I wanted to ask and I forgot. Thank you for bringing it up. Was, yeah. is the American version like it's, so I have, a, I have several things like that. Like there's a, a friend of mine from Nayarit, Mexico. I have her Spanish language cookbook, but her English one is substantially different. So you kind of need them both. Is this kind of the same? Um, I don't know that you need them both, but you know, I took the opportunity with this release to go back. You know how I mentioned that you know, I left out quite a lot of the more indigenous ingredients and in recipes because of this tone of um, you know, people won't be able to find them, it won't be accessible, yada, yada, yada. So I got the opportunity to go back to recipes and put back in things that I had omitted from uh-huh. the original version but also just revisions that have been made over time you know like um i've just changed the way i make certain things Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like this is easier to do it this way or it's more favorable to do it this way so i updated about 70 of the recipes and just made sure that i was really happy with i couldn't do recipe test 200 recipes again but i went through the most substantive parts and just tweaked adapted and improved honestly in quite a number of cases the recipes um so yeah i mean i'm going to send you a copy anyway well all right that's a that's a pretty rigging buy buy the american version (laughs) let the english deal with their own weak ass like no spice (laughs) white people version and then get the real american version because it's better the end (laughs) (laughs) the end No, but also, you know, the British palette is a different palette and um, it certainly was when this was written originally back in 2015. So I let's just say that when I first wrote this book, I, I, I was more um, malleable than I am today. And so I've just gone back a bit to um, how I would have really wanted these recipes to be, to be out in the world, I suppose. Well, I'm glad you got that opportunity. Oh, my. Really grateful, actually, and the team at Voracious are really, really lovely. Um, so I've got some wonderful people working on this book and publicity for it. And there's lots of exciting things in the pipeline that I'm getting to do because it's coming out again. So <laughs> you never know. I might be, you know, if I get enough good reviews this time around, I might even let me write another book, which I would love to do. So. They will. <laughs> so shall it be said? So shall it be done? <laughs> Amen. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Zoe. Thanks a lot for your time. Um, I will let you know when this comes out. And actually, uh, since uh, your second version is coming out in middle of October, I will post this right in time for people to take advantage of it and then hit that click and buy that book. Amazing. Thank you so so much. So kind. Um, I really appreciate it, Hank. Thank you a lot. And yeah, I will probably will take you up if I go to California. I'm going to chase you. Down for a fishing trip. Yeah, it'll work. Uh, April to December is when the season goes. All right, cool. 
Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast sponsored by Filson and Hunt to Eat. I am your host, Hank Shaw. Thank you so much for listening and spending some time and hope you are inspired to start cooking some West African cuisine because it is super cool. And I think it is a, a style of cooking that needs to get a little bit more attention because the flavors are big, they're bold, they're everything that we love here in America. So I hope you get a chance to cook some food from West Africa, specifically Ghana or maybe Senegal. So until then, thanks a lot for listening. I am Hank Shaw, and you can always find me on Instagram at HuntGatherCook. You can find me on Facebook in the private group HuntGatherCook. You can also find me, of course, at Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, which is HuntGatherCook.com. That is the source of all of the things that I do, and you can find more than 1,000 recipes for all things wild on the website, whether it is Fante Fante, uh, a Ghanaian fish stew, or uh, really anything involving venison or wild fish and game and wild mushrooms and edible wild plants and upland birds, you name it. So, Find me at huntgathercook.com, and I hope to see you in a couple weeks for our next episode. Thanks for listening.